Hey, happy Thursday, friends. Welcome aboard Rob Breckenridge with you. This is Afternoons on QR Calgary. We've got a busy afternoon in store for you this afternoon. One fifteen or so. We're expecting a, a big announcement regarding the new event center in Calgary. Uh, the city's event center committee has just wrapped up its meeting, but there's a press conference set for one fifteen. Premier's going to be there. Uh, the cabinet ministers are going to be there. The mayor is going to be there. The chair of the event center committee is going to be there. All signs point to a big announcement. We'll have that for you coming up at 1.15 this afternoon. Plenty more to get to here today. Your phone calls, 403-974-8255. I want to begin this afternoon with the latest on what was formerly Bill C-11. I guess before that, Bill C-10. Uh, what was the Online Streaming Act? Now, the basic premise here is that the federal government wants to try to apply the broadcast regulations that apply to broadcasters, TV and radio, apply that to the digital worlds. Now, how's that going to work, you might wonder? Well, therein lies the rub. Now, look, it's certainly true that we subject radio and television to all kinds of regulations, CanCon regulations, etc. And yeah, it's a little bit of an unfair playing field. But maybe the answer is to ease the regulations on radio and TV, not try to apply that uh, to online digital content creators and platforms. So, yes, I mean, radio competes against podcasts, TV competes against Netflix and Amazon Prime. But how do we impose CRTC regulations in that world? It really seems unworkable. And a lot of concern about the implications of all of this. Now, in one, one specific aspect of all of this is as it pertains to podcasts. The, the government had previously said we're not interested in regulating individual content creators or individual podcasters. But it's looking increasingly like that was false. Now, it's true that individual podcasters don't have to register at this point with the CRTC, uh, but the platforms that host them do. And digital content creators that have more than $10 million in annual revenues would be required to register with the CRTC by the end of November. Now, this doesn't really matter where these, these uh, companies are located. If Canadians can access content, they're supposed to register with the CRTC. Now, the registration doesn't force them to do anything, but it definitely is a prelude uh, to something more. So joining us to talk about the potential implications of all of this and how workable all of this is, uh, someone who has certainly seen all of this from the inside, uh, Timothy Denton, is former National Commissioner of the CRTC, is the current chairman of the Internet uh, Society Canada chapter. Mr. Denton, so great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Uh, so first of all, your thoughts on whether the CRTC, you know, is even uh, prepared to take on this task, given that they have enough responsibility as it is with radio, television regulation, telecom communi uh, communication regulation, not to mention Bill C-18 as well. Well, um, yeah, there's about uh, 4,000 regulated entities in the broadcasting world. That has now just been exploded infinitely by the, the C-11 to cover all kinds of um, stuff that travels over the Internet as applications. Um, it's very bold, and it's, um, you know, it foretells a lot of uh, regulatory work by the CRTC to try to make the Internet look like and feel like a, a, a cable television system. Right. So that's Ask me another question, I'll give you <laughs> yeah. another answer, but that's that's really what it is. Well, is they it, have I, an idea in their minds like that. 
Yeah, it, it it seems it seems weird. It seems I don't know naive. Maybe like is it even possible that we can apply those regulations to the internet? Well, I my experience with these types of people is that they're not in the least concerned with practicality. Um, if they have to expand the CRTC from a three hundred person outfit or a four hundred person outfit to a 40,000 person outfit, they don't, it's not really their concern, is it? They've just been given jurisdiction over an immense amount of uh, cultural and political and literary territory, and they want to exploit their, uh, you know, powers to the full. So they'll they'll, they'll salami slice it, of course. Um, They'll say, we're not regulating you, we're only regulating platforms, but they will, in fact, regulate you through platforms, or they will regulate you directly. I mean, they have in their mind the broadcasting world. They have no other idea. They don't get the Internet. They don't want to get the Internet. They don't think that the Internet is a good idea. Uh, they see lots of problems with um, free, untrammeled communication among people. Um, they just have the idea that there is a broadcasting world and it needs to be preserved. So it's like, you know, it's like applying an obsolete model, um, but they will apply it rigorously. So it appears. So we're at the stage now where companies uh, have to register with the CRTC. Now, that's for companies earning over $10 million in Canada. Now, individual podcasters or individual YouTubers don't earn $10 million in revenue, but they rely on these platforms. So if we're forcing these platforms to register, what are the implications then for all of these individual creators? Well, the implications are that the platform will be the instrument of regulation and they will, the CRTC will get the platforms, if the platforms comply, to do the regulation for them. So just as a cable television, Rogers has, or whatever it is in the West, to have a cable uh, is your carrier and they have all kinds of individual programs. The programs are carried by the carrier so you regulate the carrier and or the cable company and that's how you get at them i mean there may be other methods they can use they're just starting with the obvious ones of the of large platforms so they they won't lack for the ability to shape what you see either through algorithms or any other kind of way uh the most important thing of course is that they have the power and the intention to do so and they have they have both and uh, it's not looking pretty for um, a bunch of issues of free discussion. Right. Uh, because it's possible then that, you know, through discovery requirements, uh, CanCon requirements, uh, that that could sideline certain content or promote certain content over others. I mean, there's also, I guess, the real concern that uh, maybe some of these platforms were just going to say maybe Canada's not worth it and they, they won't even offer uh, content at all to Canadians. Like, th- there are a lot of serious potential implications here. Well, you're right on both counts. I mean, um, what more can I tell you? It's like you, you have got it exactly. First of all, there's a heavy regulatory burden. It'll get heavier, whereas previously there was none. So platforms may decide to abandon the Canadian market. And uh, if they were really serious about, if they were serious in terms of just getting money uh, they could just go to platforms that have a hundred million or more in business. Um, I don't think this is really about the money. I think this is really about the control. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe it's about both. I, I don't know. It's unclear at this point, I guess, whether these, these uh, platforms are going to be forced to pay in. Uh, in, in any kind of way similar to what Canadian broadcasters have to do. So, uh, it, yeah, we, we really don't know at this point. There's there's a lot of uncertainty here, isn't there? Well, there's uncertainty until they until they do what they're going to do, which is the, it, it's, it's a money grab, yes, but it's also a control grab to make the, the uh, Internet world of applications that we've come to know and like to conform to uh, a 1950s, 1960s idea of broadcasting. And everything about broadcasting is, well, the basic the basic deal in broadcasting is you do, as we say, because you're a licensed entity. You right. speak by permission of the government. In the Internet, you don't speak by permission of the government. It's like printing books or speaking in, the, in, the, in a public square. You don't need permission of the government. And so... Um, when you simply declare, as they did in the act, that everything televisual, everything audiovisual, um, and a few more things besides are broadcasting, they're not making a comparison to a technology. They're making a comparison to an idea of control. And um, as I said, there may have been an argument, and probably was an argument in the in the. 1930s, 40s, and 50s for, you know, very few speakers, very large audiences, very, you know, expensive transmission apparatus, fine. There was some logic to broadcasting. But right now, there's none whatever. And uh, they have sought to uh, transform a free, creative, and um, uh, energetically and chaotic um, market into something that is nice, tidy, and controlled, and where um, bureaucrats can, you know, not be ruffled in their opinions by anything they're receiving on on the internet. It's um, it's a very sad situation. It's it's um, uh, the, the, the the implications for for speech and for writing and communication are very serious, and people are beginning to wake up to it. Well, to that point, um, because, yeah, I, I think, you know, there are the potential then for implications on freedom of speech. If inevitably this involves regulation of content uh, or perhaps even discouraging certain forms of content. So that, that's where you see this going then, where, where there are potential speech implications here. Uh, yes. Uh, the only qualifier that I say is potential. I don't see them as even potential. I see this is what they intend to do and they have announced it as such. Mm-hmm. I mean. Um, when you declare that something, when you declare that you are communicating across the internet by government permission, they mean exactly what they say. And um, as the regulations have come out, under the proposed regulations that have come out from the CRTC, many of the things that the government was denying as they pushed the bill through have turned out to be exactly correct. Yeah. And they did intend what they was, was clearly, you know, in, uh, available for them to do in the statute. And they are clearly intending to have a much broader range of control. And apart from anything else, you know, there's, there's not enough wisdom in, among the commissioners of the CRTC or any group of human beings, any group of human beings, to be in charge, uh, so dramatically in charge of what people do and say on the internet. It's like a whole bunch of private communication has now been made 
into something which is publicly to be controlled. It's crazy. But anyway, they're doing it. Well, they are. So the end of November is the deadline for registration. I guess regulations would be the next step. But I guess maybe it depends on, on how companies respond here. As we see with Bill C-18, you know, Meta and maybe even Google now prepared to walk away. There's, there's nothing there to regulate. Uh, what do you expect to see after the end of November here? I don't have a um, uh, 2024 site is beyond me. Uh, right. They can either get out of the market or they some, some somebody will probably choose to sue on the constitutionality of it in terms of offending against the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. But um, um, as in all these cases, you have uncertainty as to whether someone will have enough economic interest to, to take a case to the Supreme Court and whether how the courts will respond. Um, but I think that the thing goes well beyond what is constitutional, and I think that it will ultimately be challenged if someone is just the right economic size and just annoyed enough, then they may spend a few million bucks and have this contested. But it's, um, we're, not heading, we're not heading in the right direction as a society. We're not heading in the right direction for a free and open and competitive marketplace of communications, which is entirely what we had before. It was working Canadian content and all kinds of interesting groups were being served perfectly well with a free competitive market in applications. And now we have to have uh, the dead hand of regulation on communication. And... uh, they mean what they say. It's just that it's, it takes a while for the public to start realizing just how very large their scope of ambitions is. We'll see where it all goes from here. Uh, look forward to some, some further conversations down the road here. But, uh, Timothy, appreciate your insight on all this. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. You're most welcome. All Bye the best. Now. Take care. Uh, that is Timothy Denton, uh, former National Commissioner of the CRTC, current chairman of the Internet Society Canada chapter. So concern from him on where things are going here with uh, what we still refer to as C11. Obviously, it has passed. It is the Online Streaming Act. But now we're starting to see what this is looking like in practice, and, and it is concerning. The whole premise behind you know having the CRTC and licensing for radio stations was scarcity. There are only so many spots on the dial. So getting a license for a radio station, getting one of those prestigious spots, came with it some obligations. You know, for example, when it comes to music radio stations, you play 35% Canadian content. That's the trade-off. Now, interestingly, take, for example, a city like Windsor, Ontario. I've been to uh, in the past, and Windsor's unique because it's right next to Detroit. So it's a very crowded radio dial because you've got all the, the Windsor radio stations and you got all the Detroit radio stations. So imagine taking this approach that the CRTC would say, aha, well, people in Windsor can hear Detroit radio stations. We need to force those radio stations to also play Canadian content. Well, you couldn't do that. So what they did was they reduced the regulation. It's only 20% Canadian content for Windsor radio stations. But they're trying to, to do what would seem absurd in that context here. No, you can't impose regulations on on American radio stations, but I guess we're going to try to impose regulations on American content providers uh, on YouTube or Netflix or Spotify or anything else that that hosts uh, anything that we consider to be a broadcast, a video, a podcast, whatever. How's all that going to work exactly? And what does that mean in practice? Are we going to tell Spotify you have to have 35% of your podcasts uh, Canadian? 
for a Canadian audience? And how is that even workable? Are we going to tell them that they have to to pay more money into something? Like, I think the concern for individual podcasters is that these platforms they rely on, if they don't have access to those platforms, what do they have anymore? So if these platforms are, are leery about doing business in Canada or leery about uh, certain podcasts, then they'll just say, well, you know, see you later. So, yeah, there, there's some potentially serious ramifications here. And again, the easy answer was to just ease the regulatory burden on the other side instead of trying to impose all of this on the digital side. It just seems crazy. And uh, here we go. We're rushing headlong into all of this. Hey, welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Brickenrich with you here on a Thursday afternoon, a Thursday afternoon where Calgary's event center deal is a done deal. The formal and final agreements have been signed. The project is now moving forward. The design phase immediately, construction in the coming months. Uh, so that's moving forward. Again, maybe not a big surprise. I mean, the announcements we got a few months ago uh, certainly indicated that this day was was coming, but it's now official. So we'll talk more about that this hour. Got a few other things to get to. You can reach us here this afternoon, 403-974-8255. Off the top in this hour, though, the, the latest report card, the ranking of Alberta's elementary schools from the Fraser Institute. Now, yeah, look, it's been a disruptive uh, few years when it comes to education, not just in Alberta, but for kids uh, across the country and in other countries as well. Uh, but still, it's it's worth knowing the performance of schools. And it's important for parents because parents do have some choice in Alberta when it comes to where and how their child gets an education. Now, critics will say you can't really compare one school to another uh, because, you know, some schools are, you know, might be uh, inner city versus a, a wealthier suburb. Uh, some schools might have more. Um, you know, kids from, from low income or kids uh, English as second language or, or other situations where schools have kids with learning challenges. Is it fair to compare uh, those schools to, to others? Which is, is a legitimate point, but what gets missed here is the ability to compare schools to themselves. Are, are things trending in the right direction at a certain school? How do they compare to where they were at five or ten years ago? So I think that adds some value. But anyway, joining us to talk more about, you know, why uh, these reports are prepared each year uh, and what we can learn, what parents can learn more specifically from this data. Very pleased to welcome in the program uh, here this afternoon, uh, Peter Cowley. He's a senior fellow with the Fraser Institute, co-author of uh, this latest report, which, again, you can find at uh, FraserInstitute.org. Peter, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. So give us an overview, both in terms of what it is that's being measured here and, and why you do it. Well, you, you gave me a great intro. Um, we do it because what we want for everybody, for every parent across the country, uh, is better and better schooling for their kids. And what we do is we take uh, results in the case of um, Alberta, second, uh, um, Alberta elementary schools, the testing in grade six, in uh, a variety of, of, court, of classes, and uh, we bring them together along with uh, measures of the extent to which the kids actually uh, get at least to the best, you know, the the um, their, uh, level that they should be. And in addition to that, then we also have a, a, a result that 
determines how the kids are doing as regards whether the girls are doing better or the boys mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and and finally, we look at the uh, likelihood that kids will not do the not uh, write the test at all and be absent. So we bring all these together and turn it into an overall rating out of 10, which we say is a pretty good in, uh, indication of how the school in total is doing on this measure. There's lots of other measures that could be, and that's uh, that's uh, something we can think about or talk about uh, at great length in, on another day. But, mm. but uh, it, the most important thing that this uh, ranking can do is, as you said, first, it, it gives parents a, a uh, mechanism by which to compare the choices that they have. So if, yeah. you know, if they see a, a, a school that is doing better consistently uh, than the school in their neighborhood, maybe they'd want to move to another neighborhood. That's, that's, so certainly it gives parents uh, an idea of, of which schools they might want to go to. But more importantly, much more importantly, in my view, is this data gives people the incentive and the, and the, and a capacity to improve. I mean, imagine if if parents are all together and they're talking about the schools in their our surrounding neighborhood and they say, why is it that our kids always do uh, more uh, n- more poorly than the other three or four in the neighborhood? Why is that? And so they look at the data and 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 they look at try to figure it out themselves and then they go to the principal and they say why is it that that school over there is consistently getting better marks than we are essentially mm-hmm. uh that can start a, a a debate that will we hope improve the results because you know the president the principal will want to know how can i how can i show that our results are better and better year after year if you can't you you may be out of a job <laughs> yeah. if you can do it uh, you'll be doing a great service for the kids. Yeah. So, so you know, I, I, I think from all I've ever heard, because I've talked to a lot of uh, principals across Alberta, uh, they uh, see this report as being something they can use, a tool that they can use to get the whole school uh, group, the parents, the uh, teachers, uh, the principal, and the people at the board, get them all together and move them forward. And because that's that's really all that's really all this uh, we really want to do here. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. Just a point on the data. You, we, we've got the the grade six uh, test data, uh, the the provincial achievement yeah. test marks. Now we used to have uh, in grade three provincial achievement tests. Those were taken away. I think there yeah, was a plan to, to bring that back. back. Yeah. yeah. But did did, yeah. did COVID maybe scuttle the plans to bring back the grade three testing, or where does that stand? You know. Well, no, that's a. I'm not. I'm not aware of what what the grade three testing is intended to do now. I hope it comes back because the more uh, data, the better. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about a different set of, of, of students at a different time in their in their life, three versus six. So uh, it would be terrific. I, I'm always, there is never too much data for us. I was talking to the folks in Alberta and in British Columbia a little while ago, and we were rem- reminded that uh, about 15 years ago, we produced a, uh, a ranking of um, the level at which the kids in the school um, participated in sports uh, on the assumption that they should par- participate in sports and get healthy and enjoy life and all that. Uh, and we got a set of data from the, from the school sports associations in BC 
uh, for about a year, and then they got so much um, back backlash from well, we're not going to say who uh, that they said they really couldn't give us those data anymore, hmm. which is too bad. So, I mean, there are lots of ways that we could measure, and right. that we and in a lot of different areas, and I'd love to do it. Uh, and and the more information we have the more improvement we can make and the better for the kids. So mm -hmm. let's get back grade three. Maybe sure. we, need, we need a grade, grade nine one as well. Who knows? Uh, in terms, so we, we are talking about testing data, and I, I guess there are those for yep. whom maybe, you know, other factors come into play as to whether they, a school is right for their kids, and that that's fine. I guess people sure. can put whatever stock they want into these numbers, but what about yep. that argument that, you know, testing as as a metric of an overall, the overall success of a school is, is somewhat narrow? What, what do you say to that? Well, when you, uh, when you say narrow, I mean, I, 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 again, testing is. I mean, there are all kinds of different testing, but you know, when you're doing something, when you you, you have a purpose, uh, you you will want to know what it looks like if you succeed in that purpose. So that's that's what measuring is talking about. Yes. Yeah. Um, and as I say, the more measuring you, you can get, the better. Um, but but we work with what we have. Mm -hmm. And uh, and uh, as I say, the mo perhaps the most important thing that we can offer from the rankings is, first off, how how is this, how has each school done over the last five years? As you say, it's a little bit dicey right now, um, but over time, are we improving? Are we staying the same, or are we declining? If we're declining, we need to work on it now, because you know, the school will be around for years. The kids are only around for for. A you know, for a small time, and then they go off to the next step in, in their lives. And so we, we, we can't just say, oh, well, we can take 15 years to get better, because all those kids who've gone through the school, so between now and 15 years from now, didn't get any help. So, you know, it, it's, it's, something, it, it's something that I, I, I think the, if, if you talk to the um, people working in in the schools, particularly we're in, uh, at, at the school level, uh, they're going to say, we may not like this. It may, th these rankings may make us a little angry or maybe may sad, mm -hmm. but we understand what they can be used for. And they do use them. I mean, I, I had a wonderful conversation some years ago with, with four uh, principals all in a row at the same time from one district in southern Alberta, and they talked about uh, the incentive to uh, improve simply from the point of view that they didn't want the other guys to do any better. You know, they wanted to be the best in the, in the, in the uh, district. So, you know, that's the way we look at it. Yeah. And uh, we, we are happy to have some of these problems from covid uh, finished up with, and uh, and we'll, we're back in force for the rest of time. 
one aspect of this, too, I want to touch on yeah, because, sure. you know, critics will say, well, some schools deal with certain kinds of challenges or circumstances yeah. that other schools don't. But yeah. just to highlight from the, the press release here as an example of, of this kind of thing, it says Prince of Peace Lutheran School, public school in Calgary, has 62.2% of its students ESL, 68 have special needs. So here's an example of a school with some real challenges, but they are one of the fastest improving schools, right? So back to that point about, you know, okay, fine. We, you know, maybe it's apples to oranges sometimes, but you can compare the school to itself, right? Are things trending in the right direction? And oh, there's, yeah. there's an example of that. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, that's, a, that's a perfect example of, of taking this information and saying, uh, it doesn't matter where you start. It, the matter, it matters that you're going in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, that, is a, that is a starting place. But the other one is, you, you know, it's easy enough to think about it as say, well, what if you have a lot of special needs kids and a lot of kids who have uh, who've recently come to Canada? And, you know, there are, there are personal uh, characteristics that might make it difficult for them to stay in touch and, and, and be as successful as they might otherwise be. But here's the thing, and, you know, I've done this many, many times, and I would be happy to continue doing this. If, if ever there is a principal or a superintendent who says, the problem with our school over here is that all, the, all of the kids or most of the kids have special needs, and they're all different special needs. What am I going to do with that? I guarantee you that I can find them a school that has the same kind of makeup whether in Alberta or Ontario or British Columbia or somewhere in Canada, who's doing better than they are on, 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 on any kind of objective measures. And yeah, that's, that's really the deal. I mean, look around, uh, know what all the, uh, all the, as much as you can about uh, what um, in the, in the, uh, each school has in terms of, of um, population and and who they are and what their what their problems are there will be other schools and you will be able to look at them these other schools in this ranking and you will almost certainly find at least one that's doing better than you are yeah absolutely and that's where you go to lunch well, the full results are uh, at the website. It's compareschoolrankings.org, uh, more at fraserinstitute.org as well. Peter, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate this. Thank you, Robbie. It's my pleasure. All the best. Take care. Uh, Peter Cowley, Senior Fellow with the Fraser Institute. Uh, so again, compareschoolrankings.org is the website they set up for this report card specifically. And you can see how you know, your school's doing or school in your neighborhood, or maybe you got younger kids that are about to enter school to see what they're getting into. And, you know, look, maybe you think testing is not the be-all and end-all, which, okay, fair enough. I mean, there's a reason why we do testing. You want to know that, you know, kids are learning, <laughs> they're doing well on testing. Like, if a school's test scores are going down, like, that's a problem. Like, why would that be happening if a school's test scores are going up? Okay, that's encouraging. There are other things that go on in schools, to be sure. Uh, they point out River Heights Public School in Medicine Hat. 2015, their score was 1.7, and 2022 was 8.2. So that, that's something to be celebrated. That, that, that's terrific. That's a success story. Why don't we talk about that? We mentioned again, Prince of Peace Lutheran in Calgary. Over 60% ESL, 6.8% of special needs, yet their test scores are going up too. 
again, one of the fastest improving schools. So another success story. So don't parents deserve to know that? And I know, you know, there are critics, you know, the teachers union and the opposition uh, in Alberta, like the NDP that, you know, complain about this report card each year. But, the, you know, it's, it's actual numbers. The Fraser Institute isn't making up numbers or arbitrarily judging schools. They're just taking readily available data, compiling in this way, and people can make of it what they will. But I think there's some interesting stuff here. Listen, we'll take a time out. We'll come back. 403-974-8255. We can talk more about the arena deal, which is a done deal. A couple other things we'll get to. Some news out of Ottawa. Oh, also coming up, we're going to talk about a breakthrough in a 27-year-old homicide case. A pretty high-profile one. Rapper by the name of Tupac Shakur was shot to death in Las Vegas in September of 96. Someone was arrested in connection with that murder. We're back with more right after this. He had already survived one near-fatal shooting, but he couldn't survive a second. Rap star Tupac Shakur died last night after a brief life in a rough business. He was 25. It was September of 1996, seven days after he'd been shot. Word that famous rapper Tupac Shakur had died as a result of those gunshot injuries suffered on the Las Vegas Strip. Tupac Shakur had been at a Mike Tyson fight against Bruce Seldon. 27 years later, somebody has finally been arrested in connection with that shooting. And if police have the right person, it would indicate that maybe the the one that actually shot Tupac Shakur, the actual murderer, uh, has long been dead. Uh, But this was uh, just uh, last week in announcing uh, this arrest, Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department Sheriff Kevin McMill. 27 years. 27 years. For 27 years, the family of Tupac Shakur has been waiting for justice. We are here today to announce the arrest of 60-year-old Dwayne Keith Davis, a.k.a. Keefe D, for the murder of Tupac Shakur. Davis was arrested this morning by my LVMPD criminal apprehension team, and this investigation started on the night of September 7, 1996. It is far from over. Well, I know there's been many people who did not believe that the murder of Tupac Shakur was important to this police department. I'm here to tell you that was simply not the case. It was not the case back then, and it is not the case today. Our goal at LVMPD has always been to hold those accountable and responsible for Tupac's violent murder accountable. So maybe we're closer to finally understanding what happened here. I mean, Tupac was one of the biggest stars, not just in rap music, but music period at the time. Had a number one album in 1996. It also had success uh, as an actor appearing in movies. Now, at the time, he was also caught up in a high-profile feud with another rapper uh, by the name of uh, Notorious B.I.G., who had one of the biggest selling albums uh, of the 90s. Uh, He was murdered just months later. And uh, it's always been believed maybe there was some kind of a connection there. Maybe that, because that's unsolved, and that remains the case. Maybe we'll never know for sure the connection there. But maybe we have a better idea now as to what happened with Tupac Shakur and why and by whom he was murdered. Well, someone who has uh, followed this, in fact, somebody who reported on this at the time, uh, is a crime writer, investigative journalist, Kathy Scott, author of the book, The Killing of Tupac Shakur. He's now columnist with Psychology Today and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Kathy, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. 
so the individual has been arrested, and I guess we'll, we'll refer to him as uh, KVD. That's that's kind of how he's known. Uh, this is somebody right. whose name has been linked to this murder for a long time. In fact, somebody who has been very open in interviews uh, about all of this. Uh, any surprise on your part now that he's finally been arrested? No, the the surprise was that they came out and arrested him and finally did it. That was the surprise, and it was most welcomed. Um, yeah, Keefe D uh, is is a self described uh, crip out of Compton, moved to Las Vegas um, I, a couple of years ago. I guess nothing like returning to the scene of the crime, dude. Yeah. So <laughs> made it so much easier for them to arrest him. He was the uncle of Orlando and. Anderson, who Orlando Anderson was um, the one who um, got into a fight with Tupac and Shug at the uh, MGM Grand, and he he's he's a he was a you know a Crips a street gang member as well, and so they what we learned is we all knew Keefe D was in the car mm-hmm. that and and they went out looking for Tupac afterward to retaliate such so a retaliatory uh, killing which is what the Crips are known for and street gangs and they found him headed to a club that Tupac was going to be performing at and everybody knew he was going to be singing there so they they shot him up then and um, and then Orlando was going all over, according to the street gang cops in, uh, in Compton, that he was bragging, hey, I capped Tupac, I capped Tupac. Six days later, when Tupac died, he stopped talking, and then he lawyered up. But Keefe uh, has always been known to have been in the car and is now the only living person. There were four people in the car, and he's the only living one from it. So good on them for for finally taking him into custody. You know how he got caught, don't you? How they how they landed the more hard evidence to catch him. Was well, because he's been talking about this in interviews, or was there was there something else? <laughs> Yeah, in an interview, I think it was Netflix, or I don't know what it was. He he said he was in the car, and then he wrote a biography. And I'm sure the cops, I don't think they go around reading, you know, unless they're gang um, gang cops, you know, go around reading street gang members' bios. But uh, he... he uh, wrote in it that he was in the car and that he bought the gun that night. It was a Glock 45. So, you know, gun gun shops are open at night. And then they went out hunting for Tupac, knowing where he was headed. And um, the club that Tupac was going to was just two miles away. It was just straight down Flamingo, which is where the shooting happened, Flamingo Road. And um, it's an east-west, north-south town, real easy to get around and figure out where you are. And and there was a line around the building to get in to to see Tupac perform. It would have been a bloodbath had they oh, done God, it yeah. there. Because yeah, no that's apparently where they were planning to do it. They were headed there. They were waiting for him. They didn't see him. So they turned around, backtracked, and, and came across him in gridlock traffic and, and rolled down the window and boom, boom, boom. And um, so it, it's um, 
they had they had lots of evidence, you know. But I'll give them credit, you know. They're they're doing it now. So finally, it's. Uh, uh, but he he you know is taking. Uh, I mean, you know, cops have always told me crooks are stupid. That's why they get caught. <laughs> right. And <laughs> and he was taking a walk when they arrested him on what day was it? It's, it's all a blur. Yeah, right I think it was now, last Thursday or Friday, maybe something like yeah, that. Yeah, right. so, yeah, yeah. I think it was Friday morning, whatever it was. And he was taking a walk, which tells me, dude, you didn't even he didn't even know no. that there was there was surveillance on a street. Apparently, he was under surveillance for months and months. And you know that's how how keen he is. I'm telling you, the mob used to have lookouts and they'd have videotape you know aimed at the street to to see you know who if cops were you know unmarked cars were following them but you know street gangs are not sophisticated they are not the mob and people sometimes can you know can you know can confuse them as being similar they are not these guys are just you know dealing drugs doing what they can burglarizing you know breaking into houses cars stealing cars, doing what they can to make a buck. You know, and, right. there, and now there's one uh, less uh, crip member on the street. Should be pointed out here in, in the context of these gangs, the Crips and the Bloods uh, that, that you know people may may have heard of, uh, primarily mm-hmm. in Los Angeles and Los Angeles area. Uh, so Suge Knight was the head of, of Death Row Records. Tupac was signed to Death Row Records. So that Suge Knight was in the car with Tupac, uh, but Suge Knight, and you know, in addition to being the head of this huge record label, he was a gangster himself. He, he was a Blood. So there was you know this this gang yeah. rivalry. They beat up Orlando Anderson because it was retaliation. I think for some attempted robbery that had happened before so you know as much as tupac was a very high profile musician at the time like this this was this was gang stuff yeah and too and, and that's why they've got that special charge against him because it was gang related and 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 tupac um associated he never jumped into the gang he associated with bloods members you know um uh, as you as you pointed out, Suge Knight was a blood, a mob pyro. Street gang grew up in South South Side, Compton. I think they changed the names now to try to make them sound more respectable. But but um, <laughs> South Side L.A. But um, he uh, but so he identified with the the. Uh, the bloods and that is why they've got that special charge against them and there's no there's no getting around it i mean i you know there are photos and you can see them tupac would throw gang signs i mean he was throwing mob pyro signs you know he wasn't connected what he wasn't a made member but he associated clearly with Mm -hmm. them so this was clearly a a gang retaliation. You beat me up. Now we're going to beat you up. That's how they do it. And it wasn't with, you know, two hours or so after. But all the conspiracy theories and everything, uh, you know, puts it all to rest. This is, this yep. is just, this is just, you know, street, street justice is all it is. It's sad, but that's what happened. And, you know, Tupac shouldn't have been going around, you know, throwing gang signs. He shouldn't have done that stuff, you know. But the, but I don't think he realized how how when you do that, how important that is, and what a big deal it is. 
but he wasn't a member of the gang. So he, I don't think he realized it. It was careless on his part, and I don't think he realized how dangerous it was. Yeah, it's they, crazy. They, they committed a gangland killing is, is what uh, Keefe D and, and his homies did. Yeah, I mean, Tupac, as I mentioned, he had a number one album that year. He was one of the, the biggest yeah. stars in, in music. And, you know, yeah. I mean, an album came out shortly after he died that went number one. Like, you know, he was making and stood to make millions of dollars. And yet he just, I don't know, it's like he couldn't help himself. He was sort of drawn in, into that world. Yeah, and he was all hyped up after the fight. There's an interview BET did when he came out of it. You know, it was 110 seconds, and uh, Tyson, you know, knocked out uh, Bruce Seldon, right. and Tupac was just hyped. And he's always on weed. You know, he smoked weed right and left, and, and it hyped him up. And um, he was just constantly on it. And and he was, when you see the interview, it's like he's a little kid all wound up. You know, and that's the state of mind he was in when they were headed, you know, down out to go outside, hit their cars and you know, get ready to go to the club that night and and to perform. And, and then they see Orlando Anderson standing against a bank of elevators waiting for his 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 homies because he didn't have a ticket and someone with Tupac Tray, Trayvon I think is the one whose necklace was grabbed off, death row gold necklace was grabbed off of his neck earlier in, you know a week to whatever it was a month and it was Orlando who had done it and so he goes there there's a uh, Lando from South South Central he's the one who got my necklace and they just jumped him yeah they just jumped him and and that was uh that was that was it you know you did this i do this to you and kcd going out and getting a gun i'm like, why don't you go harass him you know why i mean if you have a glock 45 that that puts big holes in people's bodies yeah so, okay. The, the intent he they say wasn't to kill it was just to the, teach him a lesson well you know didn't work out that way so kathy this was this was gang stuff you know crips versus bloods uh that led to tupac being killed what do you make then of the the subsequent murder of biggie smalls notorious big just months later of course him and, and uh, tupac had, had a rivalry of their own is that unrelated or, or what do you make of the potential connection well, there's there's word on the street, you know, um, that it, you know, Tupac, um, he he thought that Tupac. There is a shooting at Quad Studios. It's where the West Coast East Coast um, war started, like a year before he was killed. And and at Quad Studios, he was walking in with his homies to go perform. It was like midnight. He was going to do backup, you know, as a favor to a friend at Quad Studios. Biggie and and Suge and and their guys were all there. They're looking out the window. They knew Tupac was coming. And they were upstairs performing and waiting for him. And and Tupac walks into the lobby where he's with his guys. They're loaded with jewelry, loaded. All of their necks, their hands, their bracelets. They get jumped by some some guys and and five guys I think in wearing uh, cami uh, wear, you know, camis and camouflage clothing and just ripped their jewelry off of them. Tupac was shot because 
he had a gun in his waist belt and he pulled he started pulling it out he shot himself in the groin and then he wasn't badly injured but he was in a wheelchair the next day he had to go to court but but anyway he um I'm sorry, too much detail probably. <laughs> but that is where the East Coast, West Coast started. Yeah. They didn't solve the crime. No cameras were on. Quad Studios had camera. There wasn't any film in the cameras, so they weren't working. And the cops said that it, it appeared to be a random, you know, robbery. You're wearing a lot of jewelry, and these guys follow you into the lobby downstairs and rip it off of you. I mean, that's what it appeared to be. They, they, didn't shoot anybody they didn't have any weapons that anybody could see the guys who performed the robbery but tupac went to jail the next day you know on on unrelated and someone told him that biggie ordered that shooting and that was it he believed it and thus became east coast west coast rap war so but I mean, All Tupac was was stuff. gone before Biggie was, right? So did did someone take out Biggie because they thought it was retaliation for Tupac? Or like, what, what do you make of that? Well, my well, he was hanging out in in the West Side. You know, he went to uh, do him. Uh, I um, you know record him. Uh, an album, which is why he was in L.A., of course, and mm-hmm. he was hanging out at the parks, which is where the gang members hang out. So Biggie's, yeah. you know, trying to be big and bad and hanging out with gang members at at, at the um, park, and and he didn't, he 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 wasn't a, a member either of a gang, but the. The word that has come out, and it's in an LAPD affidavit, so I'm not repeating anything that hasn't been out there. LAPD affidavit that they chose not to pursue that um, Biggie, uh, Biggie, and there is an article about, you know, Biggie being in Las Vegas and, you know, got a million dollars for, it was BS, got a million dollars for shooting Tupac. It was all all hype. Um, But um, the word on the street is that Biggie Smalls, uh, or I'm sorry, Suge Knight from prison, one of his friends who was an ex-LAPD officer, um, had his friend Muhammad, I didn't know his real name, I'm not going to say it, kill Tupac, uh, kill um, Biggie, yeah. Biggie Smalls. And and that's the the word is that it was uh, Biggie Small that it was uh, Suge Knight who did it and 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 the reason for it was you know my top seller is dead and now your top seller is dead too yeah. but um, you know um, after after Tupac shooting and again after Biggie was shot. Sean Combs went into hiding, and pe- people go, Sean Combs had something to do with Biggie. No, he didn't. Um, he's a businessman. You know, he's a businessman. You know, yeah, I went to Howard successful, yes. No, yeah, never. He, he didn't grow up in the projects. He didn't grow up on the street. He came from New York. But, um, but if you break down, you just break it down, look at the facts, look at the evidence, don't listen to the hyperbole, which is what I do. I mean, I look at it, but and you look at it and break it down, and it, it's really easy to solve. But LAPD and the word out there was that because it was an ex-cop involved that they didn't want to 
sully their name, I guess, the LAPD, and, and, and solve it officially. But I think the Biggie Smalls case will one day be like Tupac's, and down the road we're going to see someone arrested for it or mm. more than one. Yes, we'll see. In the meantime, we've got an interesting trial coming up uh, connected to Tupac's murder, so we'll see how that all plays out. Uh, much more in your work has mentioned uh, psychology today and the book you wrote on this case called The Killing of Tupac Shakur. Kathy, thank you so much for this here today. Really appreciate this. My pleasure. All the best. Uh, That's uh, crime writer, investigative journalist Kathy Scott. So, yeah, pretty wild story. I mean, two of the biggest names in 90s music murdered within months of each other. And you got all kinds of subplots with gangs, corrupt ex-cops, and just what a mess. And now today, I mean, Sean Combs, Puff Daddy, as he was known, he's a billionaire. And Suge Knight, we mentioned, well, he's, he's in jail. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.